and welcome to a special edition of Barbarians at the Gate. I'm David Moser, hosting the podcast solo this week. Jeremiah is in Beijing, working on the peaceful evolution agenda as usual. And I'm in here in Bangkok, Thailand, taking a break and doing some writing, returning back to the fray in Beijing in about another week. In past episodes of the podcast, Jeremiah and I have talked about the disturbing drop in the number of American students opting to study in China and the increasing disinterest in Chinese studies and Mandarin learning on the part of U.S. college students. Most of you know that one of my interests in the last few decades has been the difficulties of tackling the Chinese language and the question of how to best teach Chinese to non-native speakers, this issue of pedagogy, and specifically, perhaps the most controversial aspect, which is Chinese characters, one issue being the ratio of character memorization and character dictation to the other skills such as speaking and listening. Today, I'm really excited to have someone on the podcast podcast who is at least as geeky as I am about these questions, a relatively young scholar who, in my opinion, has been on the leading edge of a kind of revolution in the teaching of Chinese, and his name is Matt Koss, someone who is about to be a PhD candidate at Michigan State. In fact, he tells me even today he might get the news or get the official status. Matt Koss received his BA in Hispanic Linguistics and Asian Studies and his MA in, a sec- in Second Language Acquisition from the University of Maryland College Park. So welcome to the podcast, Matt. Thank you. I'm super excited to be here. And you're absolutely right. This is a, this is a topic I think I think and perhaps talk to interested and less interested people about ad nauseum. <laughs> so excited to uh, yeah. geek out a bit. Okay, we will geek out. Uh, and I'm sure that there are at least we have at least uh, some percentage of geeks in our audience who will <laughs> stay with us for the whole way, I think. So uh, you uh, majored in Spanish and Chinese. That's right. So that's very strange. You actually tackled probably one of the easiest languages to tackle for a non-native uh, speaker and then also, uh, for a speaker of English. And then also one of the hardest languages for a non-native speaker, right? So why why did you go that route? And uh, you, by the way, I think you are very fluent in both. I've heard you speak Chinese, and it's absolutely you're one of these a member of the elite group of Laowai who have reached the stage of native-like fluency. So congratulations thank on you, that. Thank you. So why those two languages and, and what is your background in second language acquisition? Sure. So I, I always tell people that I ended up bilingual by accident. Um, and that basically is that my parents don't speak another language, but I had this sort of fortuitous early childhood exposure to Spanish, given that one of uh, a very close family friend who spent a lot of time sort of as a caretaker for my younger brother and me in early childhood just happens to be a Spanish speaker. And when we were at their house from a very early age, just happened to speak Spanish as was her sort of norm in her house. So we had this really early exposure. And then I went to a school where there were there was a high proportion of Spanish speakers all throughout uh, you know, the K-12 system, add into that at about the age of eight or nine, sort of the beginning of formal, you know, classroom-based learning of Spanish. And that continued all the way through college. So I, I knew uh, from a pretty early age that Spanish was something that I was interested in. And at first, that interest was looking to be more in the realm of like international business, marketing, something like that. There's a long story there, but the short version is I was asked to teach a Spanish class at my own high school as a high school kid. Long story, complicated, (laughs) messy, but that really kind of changed the trajectory for me. That really was like, oh, maybe what I'm interested in is is teaching. Um, And as fate would have it, if that's what it is, that childhood family friend 
and her family. So she has a daughter that's a year older than I am. We were close all throughout childhood. Um, she and her husband had worked in American schools in different countries over many, many years. And they ended up moving to Shanghai, Meiguo, Xiao in the early 2000s, before mm -hmm. the Olympics, for sure. So they moved to Shanghai. And in my youth, my parents decided uh, that it would be nice to take a family trip internationally. We, they thought my younger brother and I were old enough. I was nine. And so we did. We took a family trip to China because my parents sort of thought, when else would we go? Why else would we go? We don't know anybody in China beyond sort of this close family friend. Um, so we went to visit when I was nine. And I spent a couple of weeks there with them. We traveled around. So we were in Shanghai. We went to Beijing. We went to Xi'an. As again, as things would happen, I interacted quite a bit with they had a sort of like a nanny and IE right that they had that they employed um who helped them with you know kind of stuff around the house and me being very young not knowing any better I just told the IE that I was like oh I want to learn some Chinese uh, my dad had been listening to you know those terrible audiolingual tapes uh, <laughs> right getting ready for the trip you know and he happened to learn because my dad's name is also David. And he was like, oh, these tapes were made for me. You know, he didn't learn any Chinese. <laughs> he tried. Mm -hmm. um, and I told this Ayi that I wanted to learn Chinese and she didn't speak a ton of English. And she said, okay, sure. And what she happened to teach me these, you know, words and phrases were all Shanghai Hua. But I didn't mm -hmm. know that at the time. Uh -huh. So, you know, I would go places with her and we would go out to, at that time, the sort of the markets where you could bargain for things were still much more common than they are now. Uh, mm -hmm. so we'd go places and, you know, I would ask people, you know, how much is this or whatever, which in Shanghai's GD, it's very different from Duanqian, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so we would, and I would, you know, being small and being a speaker of any Chinese variety, but particularly non-Mandarin, uh, at that time was sort of surprising and exciting. So it kind of was this very positive feedback over the course of a couple of weeks, but then leaving Shanghai and realizing that people didn't understand me anymore and sort of I thought I'd learned Chinese and Chinese people didn't seem to speak Chinese, at least the Chinese that I had learned. Um, I kind of told my parents coming back to the States after that summer vacation that I wanted to learn Chinese. And uh, it, it worked out that through sort of connections, my parents found a teacher who really, who wasn't teaching, she wasn't a no, I guess she was. She was teaching Chinese in the neighboring county to where I lived, but I there was no Chinese in any school in my entire school district. Um, so she agreed to take me on as like a private tutoring situation. So I had that from age 13 until I graduated from high school and then went to college, sort of already pretty sure that I wanted to be a language teacher. Uh, and so then Spanish and Chinese made sense. Uh, since those were the two languages I was interested in teaching and working with. And yeah, that's 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 how the path kind of wound for me. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, so you actually, you were learning the language. That Your secret is that you were learning the language at that time when your brain is a sponge, mm -hmm. and uh, you can really learn the accent very well. Mm -hmm. I didn't start learning Chinese until I was 30 years old. Really? So, yes. So um, I'm certainly very envious of you, and I'm sure I had to work harder than you have ever had to do damn it <laughs> but i but but i can see why you you are a natural for for second language acquisition okay. studies and uh, so that's why you're a rising star in that field that's great that's amazing do you spill can you still speak 
Shanghaihua and understand a little bit of a little or... bit. I can I can pick out a, a Shanghainese accent in Mandarin mm-hmm. with a very high degree really? of accuracy. So I can look at yeah. somebody who's you know I hear them talk for two seconds and I'm like, oh, you're 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 from Shanghai, and they're like, how could you possibly know that? And I'm like, yeah, you sound like you know. <laughs> even people who wear always... a very slight accent, I can still hear it quite quite accurately. I'm sh- I'm sure you can. Your ear is very. Uh, I can I can always tell a British person who's speaking Chinese because they say things like. <laughs> you were learning Chinese, you know, officially, uh, you know, with courses and things mm-hmm. uh, in sort of in the new digital age. <laughs> yes or no? You, 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 to you, a paper dictionary is a strange thing to have. Yes, I, I started, I did learn how to use a paper dictionary and my, so my Chinese teacher growing up, so from 13 to 18, she was trained in a, she graduated from Tianjin Shifan. So she was a, she was trained as a, you know, a language arts teacher rather than, mm-hmm. you know, the the sort of major that exists that is all over China now that is this, you know, it used to be called Hanyu, now it's called Guoji Zhongwen Jiaoxue is, <laughs> didn't exist. So she was trained, you know, as a Chinese teacher for Chinese children. So she did, she did quite a few things really interestingly that looking back, I'm not sure were all intentional choices, but were, were actually quite good for language acquisition, particularly literacy development. So she taught me how to use a dictionary. So I had to learn, you know, the system of counting strokes, you know, identifying a radical, counting the strokes, finding the page and going through. But mm-hmm. I didn't do that sort of with any degree of regularity. By the time I was... You know, the iPhone came out when I was entering high school. So I it only it was a year or two after I had started learning Chinese that sort of iPhones became normal. And then by the time I was in college, I have very strong memories in college of watching TV, you know, watching shows and things in Chinese just for extra exposure mm-hmm. and checking words in Pleco. So I sort of right. the the beginning probably of the Pleco generation of Chinese right. learners and sort of have yes. watched it grow, you know, from a very simple tool to the sort of robust tool with outlier linguistics, right. for example, that it has. That's now. right. Okay. So that explains your mindset. Uh, yes, you're of the Pleco generation. Yes. Ab- ab- absolutely. Some of my students, you know, I mean, they don't even know what a radical is. Mm-hmm. They think it's like someone on the street with a protest sign or something <laughs> like that. Which... There are a lot of things I'd like to talk about. Uh, I, I, I am really distressed at the state of Chinese teaching right now, especially mm-hmm. the fact that people are not going to China. Yep. Uh, American students are not going to China. And it seems like the, you know, China... The Chinese language has the magic aura has sort of, you know, dissipated and people don't seem to want to learn anymore. That's one thing I'd like to talk about. But let's jump into, I think, the meat of of our discussion here uh, to the geeky to the geeky part. Mm -hmm. So you have an upcoming book that is called uh, Transforming L2 Hanzi Technology. I mean, sorry, Transforming L2 Hanzi Teaching and Learning in the Age of Digital Writing, Mm -hmm. colon, Theory, Research and pedagogy, boy, that is a boring title to most people. But to me, but to me, you know, this is—I uh, get excited. I flush when I read that title, right? Yep. I taught uh, for several different programs mm-hmm. over the last dec- two decades, I guess, that had Chinese language uh, component, mm-hmm. and the students, you know, uh, had Chinese roommates and they had Chinese teachers. We 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 had them fill out sort of evaluation forms for the program, you yep. know, and the, for the Chinese courses, we would get these comments like, 
love the teachers, hate the curriculum. <laughs> so, I mean, they bonded with their teachers and they love the teachers, but they hated the dictation. They hated the tingxia and they hated, they thought it was a waste of time and so forth. For me, I, I went from the, the dark ages where mm -hmm. you know, I went through the entire, you know, the, the pain and torture of looking up a Chinese character in a dictionary. I think uh, I've written an article, uh, I think it's on hacking Chinese, about back then, you know, I actually would go through, I went through um, Chen Zhongshu's book, uh, Wei Cheng, and <laughs> I've wrote, seen that annotated wrote, page. Yes, 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 exactly annotated page about. where I wrote all of the pinyin and the definitions so that I could go back and read it again without having to. And, you know, people look at that and say, hey, you, you were trying to invent Pleco. You just <laughs> didn't know it yet. Right. Yeah, right. So why don't give me your take on this because I, you know, you're you're the you're the one of the best people in the world to explain to explain this sure. this new way this new philosophy of learning Chinese specifically directed at a different way of teaching the characters now I could do this we could do this together but I think go ahead and why don't you explain what your what the book is about what the what the purpose is what the goal is and uh, you know what your idea is for designing curricula. You know, it's funny. It's funny you you talk about programs in China and and Tingxie and loving the teacher, hating the curriculum. You maybe won't remember this, but the first time I'm pretty sure that you and I were in the same mm -hmm. physical space, I think was 2014 at CET Beijing, the last year that the program was in was over by the zoo. So that's the year I studied abroad at CT Beijing in college and you were invited. I'm if it wasn't that year, it was the following year that I went back to visit in the summer, but I think it was 14. Uh, wow. like invited I... as a guest speaker. And I remember because you shared this like modern poem, it was called Shenghua and the one word was Wang. And you're talking about, you know, relationships and and all these things. Um so I have some some intimate relationship with with CET as a as a place in wow. Yeah, <laughs> I did not. I did not know that. That's the first time we put this together. I didn't know that. Yeah, we, I was thinking about are, it this morning, are, actually coming into the office. I thought, you know, I think it's funny because I had seen you for so much longer. You know, I had seen you on TV shows in China and all of these things. And, you know, we we've read I've had students read for many years since I was in college, you know, the 1990 article about why Chinese is so damn hard and why how lucky we are compared to, you know, 20 years yeah. to be reading the article. But anyway, so. What's going on with well, if I were if by the way, if I were to to write that article now, I would wouldn't change too much, but I'd probably change the title to why Chinese is so darn hard. <laughs> that's that's about the only change. I anyway, go ahead. That's right. No, it's so what what's interesting, it started actually for me way back at CET. Actually, I had some really chance conversations with with classmates that were struggling with things like dictation. And I remember not particularly struggling and I hate them. I, I despise dictation from an assessment perspective and also from a sort of as a language learner, I don't find them to be motivating. I find them to be all kinds of problematic and we can dig into that more. But I remember having peers that would ask, you know, how do you study for dictations? How do you keep getting these good grades on dictations? And I didn't know at the time because I had learned Chinese independent sort of of a textbook and independent of a class all the way from 13 to 18, right? I had a teacher, but it was just the two of us. It wasn't in sort of your typical classroom textbook situation. So I remember I remember so specifically having a, a colleague ask me how to write the character Ying to win, mm -hmm. right? And uh -huh. I remember not thinking twice about it and saying, Wang Kou Yue Bei Fan. And she looked at me and was like, <laughs> 
what? <laughs> it's five pieces. Break it up into those five pieces. I think you know all of those five pieces. We put them together. Right. She was like, right. I have no idea what you're talking about. And I said, how do you break up characters? And she's like, you know, it's just like a short line and a long line and whatever. And she couldn't even name the strokes. You know, it, it, it was this sort huh. of complete lack of what I'm grow, what I'm calling now in my book and in other places, sort of character literacy. It, she had no understanding of the system at all and was just hmm. learning these single items completely devoid of kind of associative memory, completely devoid of any kind of systematic process. And I remember looking at her and thinking, wow, I am amazed that you and all of you, all of my peers stuck with Chinese when that's <laughs> they were learning it. You know what I mean? I yeah. remember just thinking, I the system is so clear for me, handwriting or not, that I don't understand. Like, you don't know how to sound out characters. You know what I mean? You don't know how to use phonetic components yeah. at all. You don't even know that they exist, much less, you know, you're not even looking for recurring components and sort of wondering about why they mean, why they're recurring, right? And I just remember at that time being, I was I was sort of in transition at that point from sort of being a language learner and identifying as a language learner and more, I was on my way to sort of thinking, you know, I'm not learning Chinese sort of actively anymore, but I'm using it and, and by nature still learning as we learn even in our L1. But at that time, I just remember starting, I think that was the, the, the beginning of the seeds being planted and me starting to think, hmm, something is wrong here. And I actually taught a seminar class my senior year of college. The honors college at, at my undergrad had this program where you could apply to, you could propose a course and teach it to fellow college students on kind of a special topic. Then I worked with the Chinese department and, and uh, proposed this class. I think we called it the ABCs of Chinese, kind of the basics, the building blocks, right? Uh -huh. All the things no one ever told you about, you know, how pronunciation works in Chinese and how mostly it was about character literacy. And at the time it was still very focused on handwriting. It took quite a few more years for me to really, and really it was many years and many arguments later that I sort of really disentangled handwriting as a skill from character literacy and character learning. And that's a, you know, a sort of vehemently debated topic in our field still, um, I got really lucky that after I graduated with my master's in SLA, I was in Washington, D.C., and I had been working at Georgetown University teaching Chinese for two years during my master's. And I got a job offer from George Washington University, which is where I met uh, Phyllis Zhang Zhangni. And though we don't agree by any means on sort of every pedagogical principle and every pedagogical possibility for Chinese what sold me on that job was she was like, we don't do handwriting here in this program at all. And mm -hmm. I thought, and I remember asking her why. And she said, because you don't need to handwrite to be able to communicate in Chinese writing. And I thought, where am I going to find someone else who believes that yeah. in the field? And what year? What who year is also this? an L1 Chinese user. What year was this? This was, what year was this? I graduated from my master's in 2019. Okay. Okay. So that's, by that time, uh, that sort of realization would have, you know, people are beginning to see the light by that time. And she had if been seeing that light for like six years. She was yeah. actually, Donald also describes it as I was 
you know, sort of the final straw, because at the time when I joined the team, she still had the the beginner learners, like doing a little bit of tracing of characters. And I said, John, mm-hmm. it's a waste of time. Like if you're going to, yeah. if you're going to give up handwriting, give it up. You know, it, this is not doing anything for anybody. And uh-huh. that was the last little bit that they let go my first year. Well, let me, well, let me, let me stop here just a little bit, just go back a little bit because sure. this, in, in this, in that day and age, you know, I mean, I had this, these arguments, I'm sure you had millions of arguments with teachers about this thing. And, and the, you know, the teachers are, are well-meaning and, yes. uh, you know, and they're native Chinese speakers, so they have a, a different outlook. Right. The idea that you should downplay the, the writing, uh, you know, I mean, there was this kind of a default notion that, that you should be able to write everything that you can read. Mm-hmm. Which I've bought into that for for years in the, during the '90s. I mean, I thought that was the goal, and I, and I know now in retrospect that's really not even a reasonable goal with Chinese. It doesn't even make sense. Uh, the the two will never be uh, the reading and the and the writing will never be commensurate with each other. Right. I mean, and even with, it's not even with with uh, with the native Chinese speakers and writers. They, right. they, you know. So why should we foreigners be held to that standard, right? Exactly. So I mean, uh, uh, so but still, it's a little bit controversial because uh, I mean, what do you think of? Uh, I think Cornelius Kubler and other people have had this notion that well, you don't need to, to be able to write two thousand, three thousand characters, but you do need to to know how to write characters and and, and the structure and the, the principle on which they're designed. So maybe you start with just three hundred, maybe for the first semester, hundred maybe 300 in total or however you want so that you know, so that whenever you encounter a new character, you, you understand uh, the stroke order, how it's written, maybe some of the phonetic issues. By the way, uh, I mentioned in my article, you know, that back then, I mean, you could be a, a pretty intelligent student and go for many months without even realizing that Chinese was phonetic. Oh, yeah. The, the script was phonetic in any way. Yes. I mean, it it take, it take a lot of uh, detective work and, and insight to go, hey, wait a minute. These, exactly. These, these, these characters. So you really do need a teacher at that stage that, that's, you know, if, whether, if you're going to do be doing characters, you need to have a teacher who is as well-versed in this issue and understands what it's like to start from zero. A hundred percent. And prepare the, yeah, yeah. And I so think, anyway, and uh, that's the, that's the crux of the thing. It's the two things you just said exactly. It, and, and for me, what I've come to realize and what I argue in the, I wrote two chapters in the book, one of them, so the central thesis of the book or the central argument, and, and I'll come back to those two things you said, because that's, that's the crux of the matter. The central thesis of the book is that we, that digital technology, keyboards and their extensions are sort of what we're calling the second revolution in writing generally, but writing specifically for Chinese. The first revolution being right. the invention of the calligraphy brush, right? Malbi, mm-hmm. going from mm-hmm. carving to writing, sort of that transition that allowed mass production of print to take place much much like the printing press in western europe that sort of computers i think conceptually did two things i think number one computers saved chinese from any risk of sort of romanization and being taken over by that's no that's that's so true that's so true the computer they they say oh the computer is causing us to lose the ability to write is that no the computer saved the chinese characters absolutely and i think we're gonna see very little you know we see we've seen so much variation and evolution in chinese characters historically i think that's gonna stop i don't think we're gonna continue to see that because with computers 
It's just, you know, you're not going to get sort of systemic level change again, which is cool, which is a good thing. You know, it's fine. Leave it as yeah. it is. Um, so I think number one, our, our sort of first argument is that computers and digital technology should be embraced. They, we argue, save the language. And more importantly, mm -hmm. they allow for use of language that print material just doesn't allow for rapid communication, right. mass communication, mass literacy, et cetera, et cetera. And so right. then based on that kind of with that as a backdrop, the book is arguing for a shift in what we prioritize. We're not, not all of us at least argue that handwriting must be abandoned. I think the position mm -hmm. that I take and the position that John Lancer, for example, takes is that it can be abandoned. It can be let go completely in L2 learning. That doesn't mean that we don't need character instruction. And what we're, what I'm working really hard in, in my first chapter of the book to sort of tease apart is these things that I think people have conflated over the years that if you really dig in, you can disentangle. One of them being learning the system of characters versus learning how to produce masses of characters by hand from memory. And, yeah. you know, there are people, people who I respect a lot, for example, Claudia Ross is a scholar out of uh, the Northeast. Yeah, no I her. adore Claudia yeah. and, and her work. Yeah, me too. She's done fabulous work on literacy for decades. And Claudia argues, for example, that that stroke order is an important component of committing characters to memory. And I take the position these days, there's actually a fabulous book from a scholar out of the UK that has nothing to do with Chinese that I am reading right now. And his sort of core thesis is in education, we're often not doing bad things. We're doing good things, but we could be doing better things. And because time is our most valuable commodity, we have to let good or okay things go for better things in terms of sort of efficiency of outcome, right? So what, what yeah. it is for me is that you can, we, given the very limited time that L2 learners have to learn Chinese, we can get them to functional literacy without handwriting with all of the beauty and the, the interesting systematic sort of nature of the Chinese writing system that makes it so unique and fun to learn. And that doesn't require handwriting. It certainly doesn't require massive amounts of handwriting right. from memory, what we would call xie, right? Which um, is what Tingxie basically yeah. is, right? Recalling oh, the, whole, the whole shape. So, and then, but there are so many arguments, I think, that are not what I, I actually have a I took this part out of the book because we ran out of space, but it's coming out in another venue at some point in the next year, sort of trying to get at what I'm calling issues and non-issues with, with this line of argument. There are some issues. I mean, for example, because we as a field have spent so long imposing handwriting on everybody and assuming that with handwriting you get systematic learning, robust long-term retention, motivation, all of these things, which I would argue you don't get any of those right. things at, right. at scale long-term. Right. Um, we There's a big issue right now of, okay, if we take handwriting away, what do we do instead, right? And that is, I think, a place where we should be exploring and we have done very little exploring sort of at the field level yeah. to date because we just assume Amen. handwrite 
and you'll figure that's, it out. That's right. There, there, there was a sort of a misconception, I think, even on the part of some very smart Chinese teachers, mm -hmm. that, 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 you, that if you don't learn to write the character, you won't be able to read it, Correct. which is totally wrong. Exactly. We can, we can I can recognize your face, but I couldn't draw your face. Exactly. So, I mean, and also, there's this Saussurian notion that you know, the, the speech is the primacy of language. It's not right. the writing system. It's speech. And for so long, you know, you know I struggled through Chinese. I, I, never, I never took a class in Chinese, actually, but I struggled through wow. this notion of, well, I, you know, I need to be learning how to write in these characters you know, in order to get to literacy. And then I later on realized that that was not the, not the point. Right. I had, I've had students come to me in class uh, at both at the Engine Academy and at CET, saying, you know, uh, you know, I've been learning this language for three years and now I've had an immersion for two semesters or one semester and I still can't participate in a meeting. I can't really you know, function as an adult. When will I be able to do that? <laughs> and there's this creed cre core. Oh, my God, I'm never going to learn to be able to speak Chinese. And that's because they were spending half at least of their of their of their um, of their class time, you know, uh, futzing with the characters. You get what students get there. And this is this is totally normal psychologically, right? Students who are non-experts assume that what their mm -hmm. teachers are doing is the thing that should be done, right? They assume you know what you're doing. You teacher understand what's best for me. You wouldn't do anything less than what's best for me. And to be fair to teachers, I think most teachers who are doing the sort of maintaining the status quo are doing what they think is best and I had a boss that used to say, a supervisor of mine, I've worked as a teacher trainer for a long time, and he used to say that most, most bad pedagogy, most things we would call ineffective pedagogy, I guess I prefer to say, is just unexamined pedagogy, right? It's not that people uh -huh. are intentionally doing something that they think is less than optimal. They're doing what they think is best. And often it's because mm -hmm. nobody's ever presented them with an alternative and had the patience, I think I'm learning because you have to have a lot of patience in this argument mm -hmm. to sort of walk through all of the misconceptions with people slowly but surely, right? And, and it's like, it's exactly what you just said. People assume you have to learn to write to learn to read, which is not true in any language, by the way. That's true. Literally right. any That's language. Right. And it's not even true in Chinese. And if you push back with L1 speakers and you say, Two things, right? Number one is the time argument. You, L1 speaker, how long, how much Chinese did you know before you started literacy development? Way more than any of your students, right? There was a huge imbalance in your language ability and your literacy. And the goal of, you know, elementary school is basically just to make you literate in six years. Number one. Number two, if, if you just look at your UN, right, your language arts class. Right you will be fooled into thinking that writing drove reading. But if you spread out your lens just a little bit and you think about all of the other subject areas that you took in elementary school mm -hmm. where you weren't doing this massive amount of handwriting, it was mass mm -hmm. print exposure. Actually, right. the proportion of writing to reading was highly skewed reading and you were getting That's massive right. amounts of input and a little bit of writing. Maybe the writing was necessary, and I'm I'm not at a place where I'm ready to argue that handwriting is completely not helpful. It might be helpful. I just think that again, the the core argument of the book is that we are prioritizing the wrong thing. The proportion is off. We should insert. Right. It should be ninety ten or ninety five five. Right. Rather. That's than right. That's right. The current you know handwriting is king. 
Yeah, and, and for certain programs, like just a summer program or something, it might make sense to just, uh, you know, get, get rid of the writing altogether, just, I, just learn how to speak and learn pinyin. Yep. Uh, so I've been following the TB Wang Zi problem, right? <laughs> the character amnesia, they call it, right? And uh, I'm documenting it as much as I can. I'm writing an article right now, I think, that I'm going to give to Language Log or Victor Mayer, mm. maybe, or yep. something. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, but but, but the, the fact that it is, you know, a real problem, but it is not a, 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 a fatal problem. It's not even a very big problem nowadays because nobody writes by hand anymore. Right. I mean, that's true in English, and it's certainly true in Chinese. They, they, they have their cell phones, they use pinyin, they use text messages, and, and they just simply don't write. Well, of course, in English, if you, do, if you switch to typing instead of writing, it actually still reinforces your spelling, yep. your orthography, because it's, uh, it's, it's, it's letter-based. Mm -hmm. So when you, every time you type something, you're, you're just uh, reinforcing your orthography. In Chinese, it's the opposite. You know, if you're not, if you're doing pinyin or you're doing something else, you're losing the ability to write the characters because those are just rote memorization. Things. Right. So this, uh, my my feeling now is this. You know, people say that all the com the computer is is lead leading to the death of the characters or the you know. Mm -hmm. I said the computers are not the problem. The computer is the solution to yes. the problem because it's always been a problem of this TB Wong. So there's always been a problem, right? Right. So I think I think we're on the cusp now, and people haven't really realized it. That Chinese and, and to some extent Japanese mm -hmm. is a, are very special cases because it may be that we may go on into the 21st century where where writing by hand Chinese characters is just an irrelevant uh, aspect of the language learning and using process right. as we just switch everything into into the, into the cloud right. into digital and it it will not hamper the development of society in any way whatsoever no in fact it will it will save a lot of time and effort in the educational system and uh, my I 100% agree that this and this is a new era we're in a new era we are and and it is i have a, a i was actually just at a seminar this past week that was talking about that was for language teachers sort of dealing with this issue of ai right chat gpt and all uh -huh. these things and one of the presenters who's a, a very close friend of mine, we're actually doing a, some research with Chinese right now together. He basically said, you know, he's a technology and second language acquisition. That's like his intersection um, of research. And he basically was saying, I'm not sure we're ready to, to hear this as a field of language teachers, but right. we don't know. We humans don't know what writing is even going to look like five years from now. You mm -hmm. know, things are changing mm -hmm. so quickly. So we are going to continue to lose, we language teachers, we're going to lose student interest, we're going to lose relevance, we're going to lose all of these things if we are not at least open-minded to the possibilities of the future, right? And with Chinese, I think one of the two things, one that's fascinating is that people love to talk about how, you know, technology is forcing people to forget how to write Chinese characters, you know, missing details and things like that, sure. But what you're not talking about is the affordance on the inverse, which is that it reinforces, you know, the link between spoken language and print, which for L2 right. learners is hugely important. It's like, you know, we in English, if you type and you spell a word wrong, your phone will probably autocorrect it. You know, that yep. feedback loop is magnified linking, you know, sound to meaning to form in print in a beautiful way for, for Chinese specifically, Japanese, you know, to some extent as well. Um, but I just think that, I think the interesting fight we're having, and it's it's really cool to go back and read some of the, you know, the people who were really there at the beginning of 
Chinese language education taking off in the U.S. starting in higher education and, you know, working its way mm -hmm. down into the K-12 space is Chinese as a field because L2 Chinese teaching as a professional field has existed for such a relatively short amount of time. It's still so strongly informed by L1 literacy practice, which are not critically examined. Right. We're facing right now the debate of, you know, people, people have asked me, I just did a workshop on this topic literally a week ago. And someone said, well, are you saying that L1 Chinese kids in elementary school don't need to learn to handwrite? And I said, no, I didn't say that. I think we need to be very careful in the same way we shouldn't apply L1 learning principles to L2 without question. We shouldn't go the opposite direction either. But I think it is a thing that people are wondering and it's a fight of it's not a scientific question for most people. It is an emotional, historical, emotional, cultural, question. cultural problem. Yes, right. right. Which is exactly. which is too. I think for a long time I didn't understand. You know, why are you resisting? Look at the evidence. The evidence is clear, and the reason you're resisting yeah. is because your brain agrees, your heart doesn't agree, which is a different <laughs> problem than That's right. You're then I am not giving you a convincing argument. You know, That's I think for L one. I'm curious to see where the direction is going to go, but I think for L2, it, it even comes back to what you, how you open talking about, you know, the decline in enrollment. It's certainly not, it is not possible to ascribe enrollment to one variable, certainly, but there are a couple of schools that I know of. They're all contributors to the book, actually all in the U.S. So the University of Rhode Island is one. Mm -hmm. Brandeis University, where Feng Yulaoshu, who I know you know, is. Yeah. And then the University of British Columbia, where their enrollment, since they shifted to focus on typing, has skyrocketed. I mean, it's completely mm -hmm. the opposite trend that we're seeing nationally and even internationally with Chinese enrollment. And again, you can't say it's definitely because and only because they shifted their pedagogy to typing. But I think that's a reason. I think that is certainly yeah. a contributor and they're yeah. getting enrollment, sustained enrollment all the way into, you know, past when it's required for yeah. learners. Right. So so when I was at the Yanjing program, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, I would tell a lot of, you know, students and also uh, a lot of uh, re reporters, New York Times reporters or something have, have sought me out as a way, uh, as uh, someone to, to sort of give them advice on how to handle Chinese because they want, because they, they needed to get up to speed on Chinese at some level mm -hmm. you know, as fast as possible. Yep. And uh, what I told them is, you know, you know, with, with the great thing about these digital tools and Pleco and everything is that you don't need to go through the the, the handouts and the prepackaged, you know, uh, readings. You you just jump into wherever your interests are yep. and you just dive in at that level. And the, the only way you're going to get fluent and conversant in that vocabulary and that sort of linguistic world is by diving into it. Mm -hmm. And for the first time in history, as far as I can tell in terms of the L2, uh, we L2 people, right? Um, now we have the wherewithal to do that and mm -hmm. to actually get up to snuff and have, you know, if you want to talk about uh, some anthropology or something, you can just directly dive into that vocabulary and get up to speed and, and give a speech after two or three years instead of waiting 10 years. Yes. Uh, the other thing, uh, this is backing up a little bit, but with L1, um, you probably know this, I'm sure you do, that uh, 
in the schools in China, they're starting to relax the the character requirement for children. <laughs> if they write essays and stuff, they say if you and, it, and it, it will say on the test paper or on the essay paper, or the teacher will say if you can't think of the character, or you don't know the character, it's okay to put pinyin to write pinyin. Mm. The idea being the idea being that we don't want to have the young child's thought processes be interrupted and uh, severed, you know, by this messy process of trying to retrieve a, a complicated character, a character that they don't know yet. Yep. So they, they said, keep the ideas flowing, and if you can't find the character, just use the pinyin. That is a breakthrough, and it's, it, yes. it is also controversial because mm-hmm. uh, the prudes at the Ministry of Culture or the Ministry of Education said, what? No, we have to be very, you know, we're losing the ability. Remember those TV shows like uh, Hans the Hans Yingzhou. I love that show. You know, yeah. I love that show. <laughs> yeah, right. I love that show, by the way, because one of the episodes, I think the students had trouble writing uh, Da Pen Ti, the yes. T, yep. which, which is my canonical example. Of, nobody knows how to write that character. Oh. Sneeze, the word for sneeze, nobody can write it, right? Now, going back to, to L2, uh, I want to ask you, uh, so here you are, I think you're the, you're, as far as I know, you're the expert on this, in, in this domain right now, or soon will be. If, you, if I give you the task of, div- of, rev- of devising a curriculum, mm-hmm. what, would your I- what would your ideal curriculum look like? What would, it, what would it be like? It's a great question. Um, and I do, I, I wrote a note here, I want to come back to that being able to write pinion example, because I have some, a very recent study that I am excited to tell you about because yeah, it's about writing and okay. test scores and stuff. But we'll come back to that. What would the ideal okay. curriculum look like? It's a great question. I think for L2 learners, the curriculum would be task-based. So I am, I am one of the, we call it B门弟子, right? I am one of the final mm-hmm. students um, who was lucky enough to study under Dr. Mike Long, who is the father of task-based language teaching um, in second language acquisition. And the basic theory there for any listener who, who is unfamiliar with the idea, the sort of core concept of task-based language teaching is that a curriculum should be derived locally. So it should be based on the needs of the people in the room, in the institution, in the locale, rather than sort of this canned one size fits all, which Mike Long used to always say, one size fits all means one size fits nobody uh, or nobody <laughs> comfortably, right? Textbook. Right. He, Mike used to go yeah. on and on and on about how, you know, the textbook authors don't know your students and they've never met your students and yet you treat what they've written as your holy text, right? So the idea is that instead of taking language and cutting it up into small chunks, you know, verb forms and vocabulary and whatever, and you know, Mike would joke around and say things like, we're going to learn relative clauses today because it's Tuesday, you know, instead of giving you these bite-sized pieces of language in some derived, but also usually contrived order, language learning is driven by the tasks that people need to accomplish. And usually we'll find that when people accomplish tasks using language in their real life, whether that's sending an email request to a boss to reschedule an event, or whether it's mm. you know making an appointment to go get medical assistance, or whether it's buying a gym being in the morning because you're hungry, whatever, that those things will have, if not required, they'll at least have sort of probabilistic language that people use, right? You'll make requests in a certain way, you'll open and close an email in a certain way, and the task, which is driven by the need of the learners, drives the language teaching. And what that creates the opportunity in the classroom for is this kind of just-in-time 
language instruction, right? The idea is that if you make an error or you don't know how to say or produce or you don't understand a word, that in that window where you are needing to, you have sort of this communicative intent, right? You want to say something or you want to understand something, giving you that feedback just in time is mm-hmm. the most likely moment in which you're going to remember the thing and integrate mm-hmm. it into kind of your developing system. Mm-hmm. And I think that my ideal vision of kind of this task-based curriculum, particularly for the college level and above, including like you were just talking about the New York Times people, right, who have a clear set, they have a sort of an articulatable set of needs, right? I want to be able to use Chinese to do X, Y, and Z. That extends to writing also, right? So if, for example, you need to be able to sign your name and you want to be able to write your Chinese name to sign things, cool. That is a task that requires minimal handwriting from memory. Mm -hmm. And you should probably learn how to write your name neatly so people don't think you're stupid. Fine. Right. Another potential task that could involve handwriting would be if you're in a place where you have to fill out a form, right, and fill in a couple of pieces of key information. Now, I would argue that in most cases, even if you have to do that, you have access to your technology. So if you forget how to write a character, you can type it and then copy it, right? It doesn't have to be Mm. From memory right. and the things that right. teachers often say, oh, you need to learn how to write, you know, whatever to fill out a form. And I'm like, wrong. Those things are printed on the form. You have to write the numbers that go in between. That's right. You know, that's so exactly right. That's it, exactly right. It really is a realistic approach to what is necessary to minimally accomplish language use tasks. Um, at the level that you need to be able to do them, right? Because it's very different mm-hmm. to be giving a lecture or uh, a former colleague of mine did a fabulous dissertation on Japanese, not Japanese, U.S. diplomacy staff going to Japan to learn and they their need to be able to make toasts at formal events ah. in Japanese, right? That mm-hmm. is a particular set of language. It's a particular kind of ritual right. Um, and you don't want to mess that up, right? You have to have a particular right. set of skills to be able to do right. that. So I think the way writing falls into the curriculum then is it really is based on the needs of the people in your program, which requires there's a startup cost to that, right? You have to figure out what they are and kind of translate right. that into a curriculum. But the beautiful thing is for most contexts, the students' needs year after year don't vary that much there'll be variation but they're you're gonna sort of synthesize out a common set of Mm -hmm. core communicative needs and i think the curriculum gets built on that Mm -hmm. in an ideal world and of and of course in the new era the student can uh depart from the curriculum much easier yes. they're not dependent on the textbooks right. signing yeah well what you described sounds like a good uh curriculum for any language oh uh, i think so not not just not not just not just chinese yes we're getting running low on time here, and I do want to real quickly get to um, the issue of the upcoming, the looming issue of chat GPT, GPT-4, and all these kinds of things. Now, I've been using it, and and especially going back and forth Chinese. It, uh, you know, of course, the, the language it produces is flawless in English and Chinese as well. The other day, I was writing uh, something that I had to read out loud, so I wanted to have it be sort of idiomatic, and I was... 
it was it was a sort of a, not a kind of a eulogy, but a remembrance of my Xiangsheng teacher, Ding Wangquan, and I had written some very nice things about him. And I said, well, let me put this into into GPT four, which I'm using, and seeing what it says, if it has any corrections or any advice for this thing I've written. Yep. Right? So I entered it in. I said, could you please, you know, correct this stylistically or any errors, grammatical errors, everything. And the GPT-4's answer was, there aren't any obvious grammatical errors. However, I have some suggestions that are stylistic. And it said, first of all, you're, this is, a, this is a, a passage about your teacher who you respect. And I notice here you use the character ni instead of nin. Mm -hmm. And I think you ought to change that. And I went, oh, my God, I hadn't even thought of that. I was just <laughs> you know, writing it. This is amazing. It was it was savvy to this very human thing yep. of, of respect for the teacher. And I'm thinking, you know, in a year or two years, three years, these programs will be functionally like having a Chinese, native Chinese speaking friend who you can consult and get language advice. Yep. So what's your what's your five minute, um, you know, pressy here on what the future might hold? Uh, in terms of Chinese, uh, but any language, but Chinese, uh, you know, is this going to be a third revolution? <laughs> it's what? highly possible. And what's what's fascinating and also scary um, when you kind of are plugged into this tech space is how quickly things become irrelevant, right? Especially as a scholar, right? You write about something. And then, you know, before your paper can be published, the thing is no longer <laughs> right. a new thing, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, but with ChatGPT and it's like, I think what's, I, I totally agree. I do think it's going to be a powerful tool. And I think it, again, will require a little bit of a, a sort of some cell, some soul searching on behalf of language teachers in terms of what, what it means for the writing process, you know, ChatGPT requires, if you're going to use its output critically, it requires a couple of things. Number one, it requires awareness of sort of what it can and can't do, right? Of what it mm -hmm. actually is. It sounds quite human, but it's not, you know, it's probabilities. Right. It's just this word is most likely to be followed by this word extended across a text, which, you know, in terms of language mechanics generally does well, but in terms of content can be completely nonsense made up. That's right. And also like, right. you know, copyright problems and all these other interesting things sure. coming up. So understanding what it does, what it can and can't do, I think is, is a core skill for any language teacher at this point in the world. And then I think, again, I, I totally agree with my colleague, Fred Poole, who talked about, I, I think it's changing what it means to write. At least it's changing mm -hmm. what it means to it's adding a new player to the writing process, right? Where you can throw in a list of bullet points to chat GPT and say, give me a text about this. Right. And it will, it almost is like a drafting or an editing helper that then requires your human interaction in terms of sort of what was your intent. What I'm finding with chat GPT sometimes is that it just, it over formalizes or under formalizes things. And then I'm like, mm, that's like slightly too, it, it, yeah. it doesn't feel right. I need to like yeah. tone this down just a little bit or, or beef it up a right. little bit. But I do think it's, it's going to change. I think it's going to change the translation industry. So part of me is secretly yep. glad that I didn't choose that as my career path, because I think they're going to encounter a big shift in what it means to be a translator, particularly of non-literary yeah. texts. Uh, yeah. But I think, 
I think writing, and there's some, some wonderful scholarship actually coming out of Michigan State, um, the dean of the college where I am actually, Bill Hart-Davidson has written quite a bit on Twitter and other places about this, that, you know, writing is a fundamentally human endeavor and it goes beyond text generation, right? The idea is that mm -hmm. you are, you have communicative and you have an intent, you have writing is also a learning process for us, as, as you very well know, as a, as a scholar this many years, it's part of thinking, it's changing your understanding of a thing. And there are some of those mm -hmm. benefits that you won't get if you put something into AI, get something out and then send it as is with no kind of engagement with what yeah. goes in and out. Yeah. But I, I think it's an exciting time if you're open-minded to sort right. of what this can mean for, like I've heard you talk about a couple of times today, sort of this co-curricular, self-motivated, independent you know, learning and, and right. ability development, I'm excited for how it's going to hopefully yeah. enable some of that. But I, to come back to your point about Chinese characters also, I think I tell teachers this all the time, and I think people don't always love to hear it. Can you learn without a teacher? Yes. Can you teach without a learner? No. So which one <laughs> of these processes is central? The learning is the central process. Yes. And the teacher then, I think the role of the teacher is in the same amount of time, right? Make my learning more efficient because you can help mm -hmm. me avoid things, right? You can scaffold for me. You can right. make it more effective because you're supposed to know how this thing works and how best I can remember it and make it more enjoyable, right? Like learning Chinese, as I'm sure you remember, to people who are very like language nerds, like we are, maybe some days you really enjoyed marking up Tian Zhongshu's book, but some days I'm sure that was frustrating. Yes, so, absolutely. Yeah. And and to come back to what you talked about at the beginning, again, enrollment, right? In a world, unfortunately, like the one we live in, where in the United States, you can live your whole life and avoid engagement with people who don't know English, as sad a life as I think that would be, when people don't have to learn another language, you have to find ways to enable or encourage them wanting to do it. And I think for Chinese, if the hill you're going to die on is we must handwrite all characters and that's that's it. I think enrollment is going to continue to be yeah. a problem to the point that we are no longer having yeah. these conversations because there are no more language programs. Right, right. Totally agree. Well, great, Matt. This has been fantastic. Covered a lot of things. There's a lot more to talk about. I hope we can do this again sometime. I hope that we can... Uh, I didn't realize we'd met up <laughs> when you were at CET. Yes. I hope there is a second time of temporal spatial interaction. Uh, so. We'll see how that goes. Uh, the, so the book is Transforming L2 Hansa Teaching and Learning in the Age of Digital Writing, Theory, Research, and Pedagogy. Is there a link to that anywhere yet? Not or... yet. It should be. We're hoping for a publication date in the spring of 2024, so coming soon. And also for all of you, you mentioned uh, Hacking Chinese earlier. For anybody who's plugged yes. into the Hacking Chinese space, pay attention there also because Ali Ling is one of the contributors to the book like you are. Yes. And he will be, yeah. uh, he'll be sharing his contribution as sort of a a way to share the book as well. Um, we've got some some right. heavy hitters. You're there. Ollie's there. Victor Mayer is there. Mike Everson. Uh, we've got quite a few, I think, cool stories in addition to the, the theory and the empirical research and the pedagogy sort of sharing. We've got some really powerful stories from experienced learners and users. So I'm excited. Okay. So yes, definitely right. stay. We'll keep you posted. And as soon as it comes out, you'll be the first to know. All right. Great. All right. Thanks a lot, Matt. Very good. Thanks for for doing this on your one of your your day off, and I hope you get your PhD candidacy uh, today. Fingers Let crossed. me know. Well did. All right. 
All right. And that's all for Barbarians at the Gate. Tune in next time. And hopefully Jeremiah and I will both be uh, in the saddle. Thank you.